I think people talk about taking a leap of faith, and I think that's really important, but I think you should take a leap of faith with a parachute. And the parachute has to be the planning and the business planning and the thought process. And a lot of the times, people sometimes rely a little too much on their gut and don't do the homework, do the competitive research, and and do the not-so-sexy work behind Mm -hmm. some of the decision-making and just jump into things because it feels right. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm really excited today because I have a special guest, Tony Rivas, who is the CEO of Chifles, which I know now is the oldest Hispanic snack brand in the United States. So welcome to the podcast, Tony. I'm really excited for you to share your story because I know it's a very special one. So why don't you start by giving us a little background on Chifles and then also on you? Sure. Thank you, Christy. And thanks for having me. So I want to make a correction. We are not the oldest Hispanic snack brand in the U.S., but we are one of the oldest at 60. I mean, I'd love to be able to to claim that, but I don't think that's the case. Okay. So anyway, so the brand actually started in 1963. Before that, the, the founders, the Argudo family, had spent some time in Havana, Cuba, and they were inspired by the street vendors selling plantain chips and brown paper bags. They thought it was a, a novel idea. They thought it would work in the U.S. So they moved to Tampa, Florida and started Chiefless in, in 1963. My family's ties to the brand started 10 years later when my father at the age of 19, a recently arrived Cuban immigrant, started working for a small distributorship in, in South Florida. And the genesis of that distributorship was basically that the founders in Tampa were looking for somebody to sell their plantain chips in Miami, Florida. So my father at the age of 19 joined Mr. Julio Borges at Borges Distributors, and they started to sell the Chiefless plantain chips. So that was the construct of how it was kind of worked out the Borges family, the Rivas family, and the Argudo family. And that that went on. So through my childhood, I was always close to the brand, even though at that point we didn't we didn't own the brand. While other kids were mowing lawns for allowance, I was unloading uh, trucks of cheapless when I was a kid. And during the summers, I'd work on my dad's route because he started off as a route guy. Then he ended up being a supervisor. Then he bought into the into the distributorship. And finally, in, in 1999, he bought the, he owned the, the distributorship. So, and at that point, all throughout, we were still distributing the cheapest brand along with a few other brands. We were never distributing, I don't know, 20, 30, or 100 brands. It was always a few DSD brands. So then my background is I studied at an all Jesuit, at a Jesuit all boys school in Miami called Belen Jesuit. Then I went to University of Florida, I became an engineer. And I was an engineer in Texas for uh, for Raytheon, which is missile defense. I was a manufacturing engineer for for Raytheon. I actually started working there September 12, 2001. My goodness, that's crazy. Yeah. So we moved in. I was moving in. I I was living in Dallas. I had moved in that Monday. 9-11 happened on Tuesday. I think I started work like that Thursday or the 12th or 13th. So I was in missile defense at a pretty, pretty wild time. Sure. I did that for four years. And after a while, I realized that that didn't feel like what my future was all along. You know, I had always worked summers with my father in the distributorship. And, you know, he had said, you know, I'll never end up doing anything with this company without first talking to you about it. So 
Eventually, I moved down to back to Miami, and I was the pharmaceutical rep for four or five years, still kind of trying to find my way. So I'd done some engineering and some outside sales. And then around 2010, the opportunities were, com- were coming to, to move up in the, in the pharmaceutical world, but it had to do with relocating. And I already had relocated once before, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this distribution thing, I'm going to give the snack business a, a try. So went to work with my with my father in the distribution and started growing that. We doubled in size fairly quickly. But then I realized, listen, at the end of the day, we don't own anything, right? We're yeah. middlemen and we're subject to any sort of change. They can pull a brand from us overnight and we have nothing nothing to show for it. And at that time, my father, we had picked up the the Mission Tortillas was, became a big part of our business and kind of gave us the identity as a you know best-in-class distributor. But th- these other brands like Cheapless were brands that my father had carried for 40 years now and it essentially helped develop those brands into what they were in, in the South Florida market. And then from one day to the next, we, we lost one of those brands. And it finally uh, you know, showed my father that we need to make a move. We need to acquire something. We need mm-hmm. to own something. And so we went and spoke to the Argudo family at that time. Mr. Argudo had passed away. This was back in 20, 2015, early 2016. Mrs. Arguto, we, we spoke to her about what our vision was for the brand and how we wanted to preserve the legacy, how selling to a bigger company would basically, you know, they would take, rationalize and leave it with one or two SKUs and it would just become part of their portfolio where for us, this was, this was everything to us. You know, we had, we had grown up with this brand and we thought that who better to carry the legacy than the, than the Rivas family. Were they looking to sell at the time? Like, did you know that? Or were you guys just like, this is what we need to do. And this is what we feel, the brand we feel, and we're going to go for it. They were not for sale. Wow. And we went and said, listen, we, we need this opportunity. We just lost another major brand that we're carrying after developing it for 35 years. And we have nothing to show for it. Yeah. So we need this to happen. And at that point, she was advanced stage. It was really not a succession plan in place per se. So it just made sense. It was a it was a matter of of coming to an agreement and moving mm-hmm. forward on it. Wow, I mean, it's so cool to me that you had what your dad had a fifty year relationship with the brand, or at this point, so maybe forty years before you bought it. That's wild. Yeah, it's one of the unique parts of of our story and and, yeah. and our and our history. It's the is how long we distributed the brand for because yeah. you typically don't hear of a distributor buying out a brand. It's typically- no, I've not, I have not heard. I mean, I've done a lot of interviews and that's not been one of the stories. So first of all, amazing because I sometimes you think there can't be any more stories, but there always are. And this is so unique. I mean, it's so cool what you guys did. And this was a testament to the name that my father had built for himself. And he basically had a 40 year interview with the, yes. with the, with the founders yes. and yes. he did right by them for, for so long. Yep. That even though it was it wouldn't have been your first option to sell to to one of your one of your customers and especially a distributor, but it was what made sense at the time and we made a case for what we wanted to do with the brand and how we wanted to carry on that legacy and so that it would it would be remembered as one of the oldest Hispanic yeah. snack brands in the US. So it was a tough process. And the reason that distributors don't buy brands is because they typically don't have the money to do so. So it took, you know, we had to scratch everything that we had together. And my father at the age of 63 at the time, put all his chips on the table. Somebody who that, that's always been a very conservative person in terms of spending and just the way he thought of business and the way he ran the distribution. All of a sudden here it, he is the age of retirement. And he's putting it all on the line for, in part for me, because he, he believed in me and, and what I could do in part 
because he had worked for this, worked with this brand for 40 years. You know, when mm-hmm. emails first came out, my father's first email was not a Borges email, which is, was the name of his distribution company. His first email was chiefless at msn.com. He felt like he was part of the family, even though, yeah. he, you know, he didn't own it. So then this is early 2016. We start working through the process and it took far longer than any of us expected. And then finally, on July 10th, 2017, we acquired the brand. At that point, I had a four-year-old son and my wife was 10 months pregnant. I mean, at this wow. point, she was my, my second son was born on, born on July 24th. So here we are running a distribution company out of South Florida, out of Miami. And basically now we had bought a manufacturing plant in Tampa, Florida. So I started flying in on Mondays and flying out on Thursdays and trying to understand the, the manufacturing piece of this business, right? For the last, I had worked from him from 2007 to 2017, and it was basically perfecting the distribution model that, and the, the DSC distribution model. And now it was time to run a brand. So as you can imagine, hands full, trying to get that up and running, trying to understand that this was a brand, that this is a facility and a business that needed some TLC and some handholding as we start to move forward and figure out how to how to grow it. So I was flying back and forth two months into doing it. My son is born. My second son, Luca, is born. And now I have, we have AJ and Luca. My wife is basically raising both kids at this point because I'm flying in on Mondays, flying back Thursday nights. And then four months to the day of acquiring, we have a factory fire, right? We were, it's crazy how this works out. I, we were, I was actually at a wedding in South Carolina. I was at the airport in South Carolina and I was working with a business coach at the time and I was working on my vision statement basically, or not a vision statement, a vivid vision, basically looking at what the next five years look like for the businesses. And if you look at the timing, as I'm doing that, the factory was actually on fire, had caught fire and was burning down. So land in Miami from this flight from South Carolina, Miami to, I get a call from my father and we had lost everything. The plant had burned down. We had lost everything. And so Again, I mentioned my father had put all the chips on the table at this point, and we're without a factory, and we don't have a second location. We were fortunate enough that one of our local competitors started co-packing for us. So within a week of the fire, we had product back on the shelves, but on a very limited basis. And in that process, we started to see that they just didn't have the capacity available to, to, to meet our needs. So at that point, we used to source the plantains from Ecuador. They would peel them, put them in 50-pound bags. There was 1,100 bags in one of these refrigerated containers. They would sit a day or two at the port over there, would be in transit six, seven days, hang out at the port here for a day or two. By the time you processed it, you were getting a plantain that was maybe two weeks old. And you can't replicate freshness. So I would liken it to, you know, if you go fishing, you catch a, a fish and you grill it that same day, or the freshness of it is completely different if you take that same fish and leave it in the refrigerator for three days and, and try to eat it. So while we were trying to get back on our feet and while we were waiting for the insurance and and the bank and everybody to get everything in order so that we could rebuild we were desperate at a time so we started sourcing the chips already made from ecuador right this was just kind of as a bridge to us rebuilding a facility we figured now there's no need to have the facility in tampa our biggest customer is still borges so let's put our facility as close to our our manufacturing plant as close to our you know, our biggest customer just to, to reduce freight expense and whatnot. And in that process, we started sourcing in the chips and 
we kind of stumbled onto a different business model because now today our chips were basically farm to chip within 24 hours wow. from the time that the fruit is harvest, harvested so it's peeled and cooked. And so you can't replicate that freshness. So the quality, the consistency, and also very important, the margins were better. And so that allowed us to outsource the more complex part of the business at that point, which was the importing of raw fruit and, and actually processing it. And basically, we this new business model, we pivoted and basically what we started doing here was just packaging into the commercial bags. And now we could focus on sales and distribution, which is what we had kind of built our reputation on over the last 40 years. I have a question for you. Was there any moment when the fire happened and you had just you just completed this extensive long purchase and was there any moment where you were like it's not worth it this is a sign we should not like was there any moment where you guys were thinking maybe this isn't the thing to do that thought never crossed my mind <laughs> that thought never and I've, I've been asked this question before and it was just failure wasn't an option like i mentioned my father had worked his whole life and then had kind of cashed in his ticket and said, all right, let's roll the dice on this. Let's make this happen. And so at that point, could I have gotten my money back? Could we have gotten our money back and gone to somebody else and sold the brand to somebody else? Yeah. But that was just not an option. Failure was not an option. We, you know, and there's this really, it ended up being my wife that helped me realize this more than anybody else was. So this happened right in, in November, right around my birthday. She had bought me these shoes that we were so happy. We were trying to get this brand for 18 months. So she had bought me these Nikes and she had uh, put on the back of them. She had written cheapless, had them personalized for me. And so we went, so the fire happens. We drive down there. We see it. I mean, it was such a vigorous fire that it burned for 14 hours. We weren't able to save one bag from the fire. It was an absolute total loss. And so, you know, you can imagine walking through that sludge of my shoes are a disaster. We come back that day and I walk in and she has those shoes there sitting for me. And I couldn't even look at them. I was so, and I kind of broke down and started crying and had an emotional moment there. And I remember she had written a letter for me that just talked about what, what the meaning of Chiefless was. And it was about family and faith and perseverance. And I have that, that note framed in my in my home office. I should make a copy of it to have it in my in my work office because it was really inspiring. But I remember her telling me, listen, what burned down was the factory. You didn't buy that factory. You bought that brand. You still have the brand. And yeah. And it was somebody that really didn't understand the business, has never worked in TPG. And it, but for me everything was just so just all so connected. I was like, there's nothing we can do now. And she yep. gave me that perspective and really was just so pivotal in the success. I mean, for the next, it was a bumpy road after that. I, I will I will say it was really tough, really challenging. Everybody, every phone call, one of the things about our brand that's interesting is that we're heavily DSD. So we do a lot of direct store delivery. And at that time, and still to this day, there's a lion's share of distributors that basically only live off of Chiefless as the one brand that they carry. Wow. Right? So yeah. if they're not getting product, then yeah. they could maybe... Yeah absorb it a week or two, but they'll go out of business. So we were getting limited supply and it was making decisions on who to give product to and how to keep everybody afloat. So it was some real tough times, but through that, and then I was working the factory at that point, you know, I was actually working the line at times, people wouldn't show up. It was just really tough times. And at this point, you know, I have a newborn and a four-year-old and I would come home and say, you know, this is terrible. I just so difficult. And Never once did she say, well, I'm raising two kids right now and 
she never complained and was super wow. supportive. So I was absolutely blessed to have to for, have that kind of support. Seriously. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It almost sounds like you have a 60-year-old startup on your hands in a way, right? Because you went through all of this stuff the minute you bought it. It was almost like completely starting over. So what's that? And then not very long after you have COVID, right? So wow, what a journey you've been on. Well, it's one of these things where it's certainly a journey. And since the fire happened so fast and then we're kind of cruising and then COVID happens, like you go through these stages, we're like, okay, what's going to happen next? Like what's going to be the next shoe to fall, right? What's, what's right. going to be the, the next challenge that we deal with? But the fire really gave me a perspective. First of all, COVID for a lot of snack brands was more than anything, a shot in the arm, right? So I, definitely. Uh, so if you, figured, you know, if you could figure it out for the ones who, yes. Right. That, that's true. We were set up and we literally moved into our new facility that increased our capacity the week of lockdown. So obviously Maybe. some tense moments, but yeah, definitely. And whenever we give it, whenever we're given an opportunity, we have, we'll call it some luck. Like it's what you make of it, right? It's, it's oh. how you capitalize on that. When you have a fire, when you have such a traumatic event that like just shakes the way you do business, it, it puts everything else in perspective, right? When you start having supply chain issues, when you start having film issues, your cogs are through the roof. It's like, I still have a business. I still have a factory. I'm still putting out product. I can deal with this. Everything else kind of, it gives you a tremendous amount of perspective and kind of calm, right? I still get fired up. It's just my nature. It's my personality. And and it's the way I am. But at the end of the day, like I always have that listen. It's yeah. been way worse. It's so interesting because I'm sure you know there are a million people who would have just been like, I'm out. Guess it wasn't meant to be. This is not for me. But you guys have persevered and pushed through a whole bunch of challenges. And so talk about the brand now. I mean, I think that's inspiring, first of all. And for all the people who are listening, incredible story because there are so many moments where you are faced with things where you're like, I don't know if I can get through this. But you can, right? You, yeah. you can. How do you continue to find, or is it always about that? Like, we worked so hard to get to this. We went through the most traumatic thing that you could possibly go through. And so there is nothing that's going to take us down. Is it that, or is it continuing to find ways to keep yourself like, okay, I can do this? Yeah. I mean, it's look, at that time, I feel that I had zero connections in the CPG world. I, I really, yeah. so. It was just a lot of inner strength and, and, and my family and, and my father, which obviously was a huge role in this and continuing yeah. to support and not saying, hey, listen, we're here, you know, we're kind of playing roulette with my retirement here. Let's let's cash out and right. figure something else out. So it's, it was just that kind of failure wasn't an option. So once that's off the table, yeah. you just start figuring out, okay, so yeah. what do you do now, right? And so. So then that happened just to kind of bring you up to speed as to where we are today. And then we can kind of give a little bit of perspective as to some of the things that happened along the way. But once we switched the way of doing business and the quality was better and we could focus on what we were good at, we were named the number one plantain chip in the U.S. in 2019. And we have grown and we've continued to be the number one plantain chip. And we continue to kind of widen the gap as we continue to, to grow and all that really anchoring in, in our region. and now. We're starting to look at how to expand and outside of just the eastern U.S. and start to move westward and, and look at other opportunities. But it all started with that fire. And in hindsight, it was the best thing that happened to us. It's hard to imagine it. It was hard to kind of put your, your arms around at that time. But the way we were doing it, the quality, the consistency, and the, and, and the margins weren't as good as the business model that we've built now. It's just 
far more sustainable and with limited resources, we can focus those resources on what, you know, what we feel we, our strength is and how we can drive more sales. And so now it's how do we go from being a super successful regional brand yeah. and scaling that and growing our ACV that's in the low double digits, 11, 12, how do we get to 30 or 40 ACV, but at the same time, not doing it where we're a mile wide and an inch deep. We want to yes. have meaningful sales. We don't want to just just be everywhere with, you know, with one little facing. If you come into the Southeast and you see our presence, you know, we are a major player. How do we start to kind of expand that? So what is your plan? How are you doing it? Well, I got a great business advisor and, and Bill, Bill yes. Shen. I've been super fortunate to work with. And, you know, it's figuring out who the right retailers, who the right distribution partners are, what the right next steps are. And it's right now, like you're catching us as we're, kind of on the sketch pad, figuring out what's plan A, what's plan B, and going back and forth. So it's like to be continued, but certainly we've made some some strong pushes in Walmart that was a huge shot in the arm. We're having we're we're having some really good success in the southeast with Costco and we're we're excited about potentially other opportunities with Costco and other regions and then other major national retailers that have expressed interest. And so figuring out how we continue with these off the chart velocities and, and these really strong sales. And we don't, we don't kind of lose that momentum. Do you think that it's going to be hard as you leave a region where, or as you expand from a region where people know who you are, know what plantain chips are, are pretty familiar? Like, is it harder as you start to move west, north, or are you finding that there's just general demand? Yeah, what we've seen is is general demand, right? Uh, awesome. My concern was once we leave north yeah. of Orlando, we're going to have a problem. We get to Jacksonville, super successful. Well, that's Florida. Once we get into into Georgia and the metro Atlanta area, it's going to be another story. Doing great there. Then we went into Charlotte, doing great there, the Carolinas. And so what we're seeing is that this is not only a snack, although we'll never forget our roots and the fact that we're a, a staple in the in Hispanic household, because of the fact that we're gluten-free and we're vegan and it's a robust chip with a good flavor profile that holds up to dipping and super mm -hmm. versatile, we have the ability to, to compete with, with the general market and not be in the international aisle. That's never been where we've been. So because we've never been in that position, we don't want to settle for that. So we of feel course. that we belong with the rest yeah. of the snacks. Yeah, that's cool. That's a great story. What are talk about some of the challenges you're facing right now as you think about expanding and as you're starting to expand into other regions. What are you most challenged by? What are you most concerned about? I mean, look, the the challenges are it's still the gross margins, the cog, the increase. We haven't seen relief on on wages, and that's something that continues to go up. Great has come back a bit, but not as not to the levels pre-pandemic. And so for a brand whose one facility is in the southernmost tip of the U.S., everything gets more expensive as you push forward and you expand, mm -hmm. right? So figuring out the most cost-effective way to expand, when does it make sense to put in another packing plant or working with 3PL, those kind of decisions, what's the most strategic way to expand, you know, from a geographic standpoint, from the, the product mix, do you want to continue to just iterate and come out with different items or do you want to kind of get laser focused, take your, your Mount Rushmore of SKUs and go out there and, and start introducing yourselves to other markets? So the challenges are many and it all just depends on the day. Right now, it's a big focus on COGS and the demand for plantains. This is has that kind of 
superfood tagline and it's there's a lot of demand for it a lot of some of the stuff the the global issues with the war in, in Ukraine yeah. that had an effect on things like like fertilizer so any kind of industrialized crop kind of take a hit from it all of a sudden lower yields plus a higher demand fruit prices are through the roof so all these things kind of play into at the same time when you're trying to compete for share of stomach you still have to be competitive from a price per ounce. Yeah, know? for sure. So we're a, we're a fruit that's grown, harvested, peeled, cooked, and then brought to the U.S., you know, which is different from a snack that's just water and flour. Yep, for sure. What about, so you said your velocities are amazing. Has that continued as you've expanded or do you have to work harder as you move away from your core geography? As we've expanded, the, they've continued to stay really that's strong. That's so great. Yeah. So great. So that we have... Thrilling for you, because that's a, that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, for brands as they expand is being able to maintain their velocities, get their awareness to a level where people are going to the stores and looking for stuff. So how are you guys handling all of that? Yeah, we feel that we've done almost no marketing in the outside of our trade spend. We want to give value. We want to bring value to the consumer. And our one-time versus repeat buy, our conversion rate is right around 60%, which mm, is, so I think it's almost like a thousand basis points over veggie fruit chips as a whole and higher than most of the other snacks that you would, you know, that are considered hot and, and on trend right now. So, yep. you know, we're confident that once people try our product, they're going to come back and continue to buy it. They're going to become loyal, cheap list customers. So I think that's another part of the story that makes it appealing to, to retailers. Super compelling. You know? Yes, because that's yeah. one of the biggest challenges. And that's one of the things what, I mean, honestly, I will tell you, that's a theme that has come up over and over and over again on this podcast that people get over distributed and don't have any awareness and can't keep their velocities at a level that keeps retailers happy. And then they wind up in a much worse place. But it sounds like that's something that you are knock on wood, not dealing with at the moment because you you have really good velocities, which is amazing. The only way we knew how to grow the brand was rolling up our sleeves, low and slow, DSD model. So to yeah. me now, somebody dangles the that we're going to go national and we're going to this really fast expansion. And to me, that that just doesn't seem like what makes sense for the brand. Look, it's everybody has a different kind of end goal and everybody has a different mindset. I just feel that this is what's worked for us so far. Let's figure out how to supercharge that, but do it in a way that we don't lose our identity and we become something that we're not comfortable with or, mm-hmm. or that, that doesn't represent the brand the way we'd like it to. Where do you want the brand to be in five years, 10 years? Higher ACV, higher revenue. I mean, just continue to grow and grow. And for plantains, and obviously Chief List is a huge part of that, to become a mainstream snack. Yeah. And just be able to be up there with the popcorns and the tortilla chips and the pretzels of the world. Sounds like you're well on your way. We're pushing. Do you have, I always ask this question, do you have a couple of things you would say to founders or people who are at the, I mean, you were, you were at the early stage, even though the brand was developed, but so what would you, what advice would you give people who are either thinking about starting a brand or struggling or trying to get through some of these tough times where crazy stuff just continues to happen? I think people talk about taking a leap of faith and I think that's really important, but I think you should take a leap of faith with a parachute. And the parachute has to be the planning and the business planning and the thought process. And a lot of the times people sometimes rely a little too much on their gut and don't do the homework, do the competitive research and and do the not so sexy work behind Mm -hmm. some of the decision making and just jump into things because it feels right. 
So having a business plan, and, and I credit that to one, in getting our loan, the bank wanted a business plan and how we plan yeah. to scale this. And two, when I went through the, the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Program, just there's a framework there to set up your business and to look at all the different kind of factors of it, you know, from financial literacy. One of these things I was operating in a silo and I come to find out that there's all these snack brands that are not making money. And I thought, okay, well, how does this work? Right. So that was just never part of, but having that discipline and figuring out a way, if you're not profitable, how soon are you going to get there? And what are you going to do? What are the tough decisions? How lean can you run it where you're not kind of holding the brand back, but you're putting profits before revenue. And so those kind of like the financial discipline, financial literacy, and, and, and a business plan, I think are super important. It gets a little technical sometimes, but I feel it's necessary. Especially now. I mean, the world has changed so dramatically post-COVID from a just, I mean, I, I don't know. It sounds like, have you guys raised capital or has it all been bank funding? So that it's part's so tricky. It's not even oh, bank funding. Okay. So that's so interesting. So you bootstrapped, but as I'm sure you know, raising capital has become really, really, really tough in the past six, eight months, year, totally different than it was. So all the things you're talking about doing are not optional anymore. Like you have to have a plan. You have to say, I'm either profitable or I know how I'm going to get profitable. Here's how long it's going to take. Otherwise, you're just not going to get the help you need anymore. Yeah. There's this fine line when it comes to managing your cost versus kind of hindering right. your growth. Because, But you got to push up against that line, especially in times like this, and figure out how lean can you get so that you can go and, and raise capital and they don't feel like it's just this bottomless pit. You know what I mean? Unless you're totally. you're in some space where there's so much R&D and it's kind of, there's a lot of speculation. But if you're just, for all intents and purposes, a, a snack brand, you should be profitable. Or when you get to a certain scale, be able to become profitable. And it can't take as long as it used to, that's for that's sure. Right. Do you guys think you'll ever go beyond plantain? Or is it, are you a plantain chip company? We do some stuff with cassava, and I think there's a lot of opportunity with yeah, cassava. I think I, agree. Um, I think it's really interesting. It's another super versatile chip. It's got a great crunch to it. I, the, the texture is almost like a kettle chip. Yeah, and it's a it's more of like a blank canvas. I, personally, I, I enjoy them a lot. So I think, and with bold flavors being on trend, I, I see that there might be some runway there to do some stuff with cassava. We've dabbled with organic root vegetable chips and whatnot, but listen, I think this is kind of a sleeping giant. I think there's so much opportunity in the plantain space that I try to be laser focused, right? And yeah. if I see that there's all this upside and there's all this opportunity and there's so many people that still haven't even had a plantain chip or think that a plantain chip is sweet as opposed yeah. to savory yeah. and it's not a salty snack. It's kind of like what you have out of produce where it's this kind of like sugar-coated banana chip. Yes, that's right. what most people think. Uh-huh. I'm not going to drop the $100 bill to, to pick up coins right now. I feel like yeah, there's so yeah. much that's opportunity. Such a good analogy. Yeah. Right. So I get, are you going to do dips? Are you going to do this? I'm like, listen, when I get to 60 ACV, 70 ACV, and we feel like we can start leveraging other parts, then, then so be it. But right now, I got plantains on my brain, and that's all I'm seeing right now. That's amazing. Well, I think your story's phenomenal and inspiring. Is there anything that you feel like you wanted to say that you didn't get to or? No, I guess one thing I would say is that I, through meeting Bill Shen and his network, I never knew that there was this kind of camaraderie between all these CPG brands. It's so you know, great. I, 
I love that everybody's willing to help each other. You know, I found that when I went to the Goldman Sachs program within other small businesses and other trades, but I truly experienced that loneliness of an entrepreneur. entrepreneur. Oh. I, had, I knew nobody else in CPG. I didn't know what gross margins. I was like Googling, what should a snack brand gross margin be, right? And what should, and so now since I didn't have it, I am so appreciative of it now. Yeah. And I think for those that are thinking about starting a snack brand or they're, they're starting a snack brand as we speak, like if you get into that group of, if you go to these trade shows and you start to meet people, there's so many people that are willing to help and share their experience and save yourself a lot of headache, and a lot of time, and a lot of money. And there's a lot of people that are just willing to answer questions because they want to help. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. I think it's different when you're dealing with really big giant brands, but I think that my experience, and that's why I started the podcast, because I felt like there were so many founders who sort of felt like they were all on their own. And to some degree you are, right? Because no one else is dealing with your money issues, but you're right. There are so many people that are just so happy to help. And the community is so tight and engaged with each other. I just think it's fantastic. I love it. I've had so many people on that say the same thing. What a great community the startup CPG community is. It's fantastic. It really is. And I, I've just, I've come to start to knock on the door of it and know it in the last couple of months. And I'm just, I'm excited to be a part of it. I'm excited to ask questions. I'm, I'm excited to answer questions and share my story and hear other stories. Really cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us because it's a phenomenal one. And congratulations for all of your success and for getting through that time. I mean, that's just, to me, that's a huge success in and of itself, just saying, okay, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> a lot of people probably wouldn't have. Yeah, that's no, it was crazy times, but thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.